Up next, an encore power of words from 2011, FDR and the Four Freedoms speech. WAMC's Alan Shartok in conversation with Roosevelt historian Christopher Bryseth. They set the scene and established the context for the speech. You'll then hear the speech and then some analysis afterward. FDR, power of words, and the Four Freedoms speech coming up next. Words are powerful. They cause fear, confusion, and anger. Or they can create shared understanding. But when words are delivered by a powerful political leader, their impact can inspire us to great action. And it is to those words that we turn now. In the power of words. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This is the meaning of our liberty and our creed, why men and women and children of every race and every faith can join in celebration across this magnificent mall, and why a man whose father less than 60 years ago might not have been served at a local restaurant can now stand before you to take a most sacred oath. Hi, this is Alan Shartok. Welcome to The Power of Words, a year-long series of programs that follows American history through some of the most memorable and inspiring political speeches of our time. Our series continues today with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Four Freedoms Speech, delivered on January 6, 1941. Joining us today to help set the scene and analyze the speech is historian Dr. Christopher Bryseth. Dr. Bryseth is currently on the board of the National New Deal Preservation Association and a trustee of the Francis Perkins Center, located in the Perkins Family Homestead in Newcastle, Maine. Dr. Bryseth is the former president and CEO of the Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt Institute and in that role was responsible for the Institute's annual award of the Four Freedoms Medals, One Year in America, the Alternative Year in Holland. Dr. Bryseth has written a number of articles on FDR, Lincoln, and the Civil War and has spoken at the annual commemoration of FDR's death at the Little White House in Warm Springs, Georgia. Dr. Bryseth is the former president of Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, a post he held for 17 years, and he is currently president emeritus. Dr. Bryseth has a Ph.D. from Cornell University in modern European intellectual history and has taught at Williams College and at Sagamon State University. Dr. Bryseth and his wife Jane reside in Ticonderoga, New York. They have three grown daughters. Welcome, Chris Bryseth. It's good to be here, Alan. Well, it's wonderful to talk to you because your incredible store of knowledge about FDR is something that we all want to tap into. So let me start by asking, what was the president trying to achieve in this chat? He had just been reelected to a third term, which is a very controversial election. It was a very close election. And in the course of that election, a very controversial move was made, which was the Selective Service Law, which just passed by one vote. And there was a real talk within the election that he was going to take us to war. The isolationists made much of that. Wilkie, his opponent, made much of that. Uh, and at the very end, the very last broadcast to the nation, he said he would not send our boys to war, which probably was responsible for his being reelected. It was that close. Anyway, he came out of that election. Hitler, of course, was already dominant in Western Europe. He'd taken over the lowlands. He'd taken over Norway and Poland. And so the pressure was on Roosevelt 
once the election was over, to really move in the preparation for war that he knew we eventually were going to be part of. The speech, which was a dramatic statement about the threat to democracy around the world, gave the opportunity for him to establish the high ground of what America's involvement was be. Not only if we got into war and our boys did go to fight, but in our increasing support of materiel to Britain to help them hold off the Nazis. So the Four Freedoms, which comes at the very end of the speech, really establishes the kind of moral commitment that we're making as we start relating to what he labels World War II. It's FDR that calls it World War II. Up to that, it's been the Great War and this war we're in now. But this becomes World War II, and he becomes, of course, in time, the dominant leader of that war. So why was the election so close? Was it because Wendell Wilkie was the most persuasive of his opponents, the most reasonable in terms of the American middle stream? Or was it because he was now violating the great second-term taboo? I think it was close primarily for the latter reason. I think breaking Washington's two-term limit was very controversial with a lot of people. And at the same time, Wilkie was a centrist. In fact, he was wonderfully bipartisan in his support of Roosevelt's policies of support for Britain, so that the really angry isolationists were left out. They didn't have a candidate. And there were a lot of independents who felt the two-term limit should not be violated and that we'd had enough of Roosevelt. And remember, coming out of the late 30s, Roosevelt was not in a very strong position. I mean, he 38 was really his worst year. The, the recession or the depression was reestablished, and the court-packing situation uh, had robbed him of a lot of credibility. He wanted to pack the Supreme Court for a few of the younger people who were listening so that he could get some of his programs. Well, through. the court of that time, which there are some memories here that evoke the present, was knocking down the New Deal legislation, sure. left and right. And he came out of the 36 election, having carried all but two states, and he proceeded to have a court reform plan that was going to add judges to the court. And there is no constitutional limit on judges, so uh, the number. And, of course, he got knocked down by his own leaders in the Senate. One of the great ironies, of course, is, as you were pointing out so profoundly, it seems to me that the war, which was his biggest problem getting us into it, also made him as one of the greatest presidents of all times. No question. To put it briefly, had Hitler not come on the scene and done what he did, we never would have had a third term for Franklin Roosevelt, and he would have been a very important president because of the Depression. We live in the world created by Franklin Roosevelt. He was just huge, both domestically over basic policies like Social Security, but in terms of America's role in the world, Roosevelt brought us back into the world, and we've been there as the leading power up to now ever since. So, uh, yes, World War II created the opportunity for Roosevelt to become the dominant figure that he remains today. Talk a little bit about the Four Freedoms. Well, the Four Freedoms, freedom of speech and communication, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear, are remarkable as an organizing set of concepts for World War II. And you know Norman Rockwell did the uh, major covers over the Four Freedoms, which are, are the most iconic images in American history. But I think what I would focus on, Alan, is that at the end of every one of these freedoms, Roosevelt said, everywhere in the world. In 1939, America was 17th in the world in our military. We had become so weak. And from that position of military weakness, less than two years later, in January of 1941, as he gives his State of the Union message, he is saying, these are the freedoms that we are concerned about everywhere in the world. This begins, and this is now 11 months before Pearl Harbor, so we're not yet in the war. 
He is setting America as the, in some sense, the model for these freedoms, which he said democracy cannot exist in the world without these freedoms being assured. And he will repeat all through the war these four freedoms, which he says at different times, these are the stakes of World War II, that we secure these freedoms. So he says early that he's not going to take the kids into war. He does. Did he lie or did he know? Let's put it this way. Having learned from Woodrow Wilson, who was his boss during World War I, he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy, mm. and having watched Wilson with the Congress and with the American people, he did not take us in with troops until we were attacked. And he always said throughout the 39 and 40 that mm. we would not go into war unless we were attacked. He dropped that phrase and said, we will not send your boys in one speech. You can say that this was political lying at a critical moment. If so, call it that. But we did not go in. When there were provocations, we had ships that were being sunk by the Germans. We did not go in until Pearl Harbor. And that's not how he expected to go in. He did not expect to go in to the Pacific, although we were preparing for war in the Pacific. He expected that we would get into war against Germany and that that was the priority. So I think it was a supreme politician who was dealing with the problems of that moment. His own staff was nervous when he did that. They thought, oh, what have you said? But it helped get him elected. He was a superb politician, obviously. In your view, if you take a look as a Roosevelt historian, was he an ethical man? I think he was a moral man. And I think what he was doing with his political leadership was to create a better society in this country. And he saw the linkage between a better society in America coming out of the Depression and better societies all over the world, which is why the Four Freedoms, every place in the world. But he was as Machiavellian as any president we've had, probably the most Machiavellian since Lincoln. So who thought up the four freedoms? Those were his. Just as Lincoln took a long time to come up to the concept of the House Divided, you can see elements of it in speeches over a period of four years, Roosevelt was zeroing in on what were the freedoms that are important. And at the core of it, and it's what the uh, freedom from want and freedom from fear were the social and economic issues that had come out of the Depression. And what he saw, and I think the vision in Roosevelt that will last as long as we have a society as we know it, will be that he saw that America could not lead in terms of the four freedoms without dealing with our own people, all of our own people, in social and economic terms. And secondly, the obverse of that, America could not lead in the world to accomplish the four freedoms unless we were true to our own people. And he makes that point graphically in his annual message in 1944 when he establishes the Economic Bill of Rights, which Cass Sunstein, who you know is a key part of the Obama administration, said is the most important public document after the Declaration of Independence in American history. So we know that Sorensen is widely credited with having written a great deal of JFK's material, including maybe even his book, Profiles in Courage, which I asked him about. He said he wouldn't tell. (laughs) I've asked him about the inaugural address, and he acknowledges his hand. Okay. So with that said, Roosevelt was a different kind of guy, right, in that he, as you say, came up with these four freedoms himself. Came up with them himself, and he polished the concepts so that you can start seeing them emerging in his utterances from 39 on. But this becomes the State of the Union. After he's been reelected, he's going to have four years as president. The world is going to hell, and he is has as much power at that point as he will have in his whole presidency. So set the stage. We're about to hear the speech. It was a State of the Union. It was a State of the Union. And he gets up before Congress. Is he wildly applauded when he gets up? He is, partly because of Wilkie, who shows his 
bipartisan support for Roosevelt, not only in selective service, but on the, uh, the great transfer of, of munitions and weapons of war to the British, the bipartisan spirit is there, and he is our leader. We are about to hear the great speech, the four freedoms, think of Norman Rockwell, and we'll be back after the speech. I address you, the members of this new Congress, at a moment unprecedented in the history of the Union. I use the word unprecedented because at no previous time has American security been as seriously threatened from without as it is today. Since the permanent formation of our government under the Constitution in 1789, most of the periods of crisis in our history have related to our domestic affairs. And fortunately, only one of these, the four-year war between the states, ever threatened our national unity. Today, thank God, 130 million Americans in 48 states have forgotten points of the compass in our national unit. It is true that prior to 1914, the United States often has been disturbed by events in other continents. We had even engaged in two wars with European nations and in a number of undeclared wars in the West Indies in the Mediterranean and in the Pacific for the maintenance of American rights and for the principles of peaceful commerce. But in no case had a serious threat been raised against our national safety or our continued independence. What I seek to convey is the historic truth that the United States as a nation has at all times maintained opposition, clear, definite opposition, to any attempt to lock us in behind an ancient Chinese wall while the procession of civilization went past. Today, thinking of our children and of their children, we oppose for enforced isolation for ourselves or for any other part of the America. <laughs> that determination of ours, extending over all these years, was proved, for example, in the early days, during the quarter century of wars following the French Revolution. While the Napoleonic struggles did threaten interests of the United States, because of the French foothold in the West Indies and in Louisiana, and while we engaged in the War of 1812 to vindicate our right to peaceful trade, it is nevertheless clear that neither France nor Great Britain nor any other nation was aiming at domination of the whole world. And in like fashion, from 1814 
from 1815 to 1940. 99 years, no single war in Europe or in Asia constituted a real threat against our future or against the future of any other American nation, except in the Maximilian interlude in Mexico, no foreign power sought to establish itself in this hemisphere. And the strength of the British fleet in the Atlantic has been a friendly strength. It is still a friendly strength. Even when the World War broke out in 1914, it seemed to contain only small threat of danger to our own American future. But as time went on, as we remember, the American people began to visualize what the downfall of democratic nations might mean to our own democracy. We need not overemphasize imperfections in the Peace of Versailles. We need not harp on failure of the democracies to deal with problems of world reconstruction. We should remember that the peace of 1919 was far less unjust than the kind of pacification which began even before Munich and which is being carried on under the new order of tyranny that seeks to spread over every continent today. The American people have unalterably set their faces against that tyranny. I suppose that every realist knows that the democratic way of life is at this moment being directly assailed in every part of the world, assailed either by arms or by secret spreading of poisonous propaganda by those who seek to destroy unity and promote discord in nations that are still at peace. During 16 long months, this assault has blotted out the whole pattern of democratic life in an appalling number of independent nations, great and small. And the assailants are still on the march, threatening other nations, great and small. Therefore, as your president, performing my constitutional duty to give to the Congress information of the State of the Union, I find it unhappily necessary to report that the future and the safety of our country and of our democracy are overwhelmingly involved in events far beyond our borders. Armed defense of democratic existence is now being gallantly waged in four continents. If that defense fails, all the population and all the resources of Europe and Asia and Africa and Australasia will be dominated by conquerors. 
And let us remember that the total of those populations in those four continents, the total of those populations and their resources greatly exceeds the sum total of the population and the resources of the whole of the Western Hemisphere. Yes, many times over. In times like these, it is immature and incidentally untrue for anybody to brag that an unprepared America, single-handed and with one hand tied behind its back, can hold off the whole world. No realistic American can expect from a dictator of peace international generosity or return of true independence or world disarmament or freedom of expression, or freedom of religion, or even good business. Such a peace would bring no security for us or for our neighbor. Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. As a nation, we may take pride in the fact that we are soft-hearted, but we cannot afford to be soft-headed. We must always be wary of those who with sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal preach the ism of appeasement. We must especially beware of that small group of selfish men who would clip the wings of the American eagle in order to feather their own nest. pointed out how quickly the tempo of modern warfare could bring into our very midst the physical attack which we must eventually expect if the dictator nations win this war. There is much loose talk of our immunity from immediate and direct invasion from across the sea. Obviously, as long as the British Navy retains its power, no such danger exists. Even if there were no British Navy, it is not probable that any enemy would be stupid enough to attack us by landing troops in the United States from across thousands of miles of ocean until it had acquired strategic bases from which to operate. But we learn much from the lessons of the past years in Europe, particularly the lesson of Norway, whose essential seaports were captured by treachery and surprise built up over a series of years.
the first phase of the invasion of this hemisphere would not be the landing of regular troops. The necessary strategic points would be occupied by secret agents and by their dupes, and great numbers of them are already here and in Latin America. As long as the aggressor nations maintain the offensive, they, not we, will choose the time and the place and the method of their attack. And that is why the future of all the American republics is today in serious danger. That is why this annual message to the Congress is unique in our history. That is why every member of the executive branch of the government and every member of the Congress face great responsibility, great accountability. The need of the moment is that our actions and our policy should be devoted primarily, almost exclusively, to meeting this foreign peril. For all our domestic problems are now a part of the great emergency, just as our national policy in internal affairs has been based upon a decent respect for the rights and the dignity of all of our fellow men within our gates, so our national policy in foreign affairs has been based on a decent respect for the rights and the dignity of all nations, large and small. And the justice of morality must and will win in the end. national policy is this. First, by an impressive expression of the public will and without regard to partisanship, we are committed to all-inclusive national defense. Secondly, by an impressive expression of the public will and without regard to partisanship, we are committed to full support of all those resolute people everywhere who are resisting aggression and are thereby keeping war away from our hemisphere. <laughs> By this support, we express our determination that the democratic cause shall prevail and we strengthen the defense and the security of our own nation. Third, by an impressive expression of the public will and without regard to partisanship, we are committed to the proposition that principles of morality and considerations for our own security will never permit us to acquiesce in a peace dictated by aggressors and sponsored by appeasers. We know that enduring peace cannot be bought at the cost of other people's freedom. In the recent national election, there was
was no substantial difference between the two great parties in respect to that national policy. No issue was fought out on this line before the American electorate, and today it is abundantly evident that American citizens everywhere are demanding and supporting speedy and complete action in recognition of obvious danger. Therefore, the immediate need is a swift and driving increase in our armament production. Leaders of industry and labor have responded to our summons. Goals of speed have been set. In some cases, these goals are being reached ahead of time. In some cases, we are on schedule. In other cases, there are slight but not serious delays. And in some cases, and I am sorry to say very important cases, we are all concerned by the slowness of the accomplishment of our plans. The Army and Navy, however, have made substantial progress during the past year. Actual experience is improving and speeding up our methods of production with every passing day. And today's best is not good enough for tomorrow. I am not satisfied with the progress thus far made. The men in charge of the program represent the best in training, in ability, and in patriotism. They are not satisfied with the progress thus far made. None of us will be satisfied until the job is done. No matter whether the original goal was set too high or too low, our objective is quicker and better results. To give you two illustrations, we are behind schedule in turning out finished airplanes. We're working day and night to solve the innumerable problems and to catch up. We are ahead of schedule in building warships, but we are working to get even further ahead of that schedule. To change a whole nation from a basis of peacetime production, of implements of peace, to a basis of wartime production of implements of war is no small task. And the greatest difficulty comes at the beginning of the program, where new tools, new plant facilities, new assembly lines, new shipways must first be constructed before the actual material begins to flow steadily and speedily from. The Congress, of course, must rightly keep itself informed at all times of the progress of the program. However, there is certain information, as the Congress itself will readily recognize, which in the interest of our own security and those of the nations that we are supporting must of need be kept in confidence. New circumstances are constantly begetting new needs for our safety. I shall ask this Congress 
for greatly increased new appropriations and authorizations to carry on what we have begun. I also ask this Congress for authority and for funds sufficient to manufacture additional munitions and war supplies of many kinds to be turned over to those nations which are now in actual war with aggressor nations. Our most useful and immediate role is to act as an arsenal for them as well as for ourselves. They do not need manpower, but they do need billions of dollars worth of the weapons of defense. The time is near when they will not be able to pay for them all in ready cash. We cannot and we will not tell them that they must surrender merely because of present inability to pay for the weapons which we know they must have. I do not recommend that we make them a loan of dollars with which to pay for these weapons, a loan to be repaid in dollars. I recommend that we make it possible for those nations to continue to obtain war materials in the United States, fitting their orders into our own program, and nearly all of their material would if the time ever came, be useful in our own defense. Taking counsel of expert military and naval authorities, considering what is best for our own security, we are free to decide how much should be kept here and how much should be sent abroad to our friends who by their determined and heroic resistance are giving us time in which to make ready our own defense. <laughs> For what we send abroad, we shall be repaid. Repaid within a reasonable time following the close of hostilities. Repaid in similar materials or at our option in other goods of many kinds which they can produce and which we need. Let us say to the democracy, we Americans are vitally concerned in your defense of freedom. We are putting forth our energy, our resources, and our organizing power to give you the strength to regain and maintain a free world. We shall send you, in ever-increasing numbers, ships, planes, tanks, guns. That is our purpose and our pledge.
fulfillment of this purpose, we will not be intimidated by the threats of dictators that they will regard as a breach of international law or as an act of war our aid to the democracies which dare to resist their aggression. Such aid, such aid is not an act of war. Even if a dictator should unilaterally proclaim it so to be. And when the dictators, if the dictators, are ready to make war upon us, they will not wait for an act of war on our part. They did not wait for Norway or Belgium or the Netherlands to commit an act of war. Their only interest is in a new one-way international law, which lacks mutuality in its observance and therefore becomes an instrument of oppression. The happiness of future generations of Americans may well depend on how effective and how immediate we can make our aid felt. No one can tell the exact character of the emergency situations that we may be called upon to meet. The nation's hands must not be tied when the nation's life is in danger. <laughs> yes, and we must prepare, all of us prepare, to make the sacrifices that the emergency, almost as serious as war itself, demands. Whatever stands in the way of speed and efficiency in defense, in defense preparations of any kind, must give way to the national need. A free nation has the right to expect full cooperation from all groups. A free nation has the right to look to the leaders of business, of labor, and of agriculture to take the lead in stimulating effort, not among other groups, but within their own groups. The best way of dealing with the few slackers or troublemakers in our midst is first to shame them by patriotic example. And if that fails, to use the sovereignty of government to save government. As men do not live by bread alone, they do not fight by armament alone. Those who man our defenses and those behind them who build our defenses must have the stamina and the courage which come from unshakable belief in the manner of life which they are defending. The mighty action that we are calling for cannot be based on a disregard of all the things worth fighting for. The nation takes great satisfaction and much strength from the things 
which have been done to make its people conscious of their individual stake in the preservation of democratic life in America. Those things have toughened the fiber of our people, have renewed their faith, and strengthened their devotion to the institutions we make ready to protect. Certainly, this is no time for any of us to stop thinking about the social and economic problems which are the root cause of the social revolution, which is today a supreme factor in the world. For there is nothing mysterious about the foundations of a healthy and strong democracy. The basic things expected by our people of their political and economic systems are simple. They are equality of opportunity for youth and for others, jobs for those who can work, security for those who need it, the ending of special privilege for the few, the preservation of civil liberties for all. The enjoyment, the enjoyment of the fruit of scientific progress in a wider and constantly rising standard of living. These are the simple, the basic things that must never be lost sight of in the turmoil and unbelievable complexity of our modern world. The inner and abiding strength of our economic and political system is dependent upon the degree to which they fulfill these expectations. Many subjects connected with our social economy call for immediate improvement. As example, we should bring more citizens under the coverage of old age pensions and unemployment insurance. We should widen the opportunities for adequate medical care. We should plan a better system by which persons deserving or needing gainful employment may obtain it. I have called for personal sacrifice, and I am assured of the willingness of almost all Americans to respond to that cause. A part of the sacrifice means the payment of more money in taxes. In my budget message, I will recommend that a greater portion of this great defense program be paid for from taxation than we are paying for today. No person should cry or be allowed to get rich out of the program. And the principle of tax payments in accordance with ability to pay should be constantly before our eyes to guide our legislation. If the Congress maintains these principles, the voters putting patriotism ahead of pocketbooks will give you their applause.
future days which we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is freedom from want, which translated into world terms means economic understandings which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear, which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armament to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. That is no vision of a distant millennium. It is a definite basis for a kind of world attainable in our own time and generation. That kind of world is the very antithesis of the so-called new order of tyranny which the dictators seek to create with the crash of a bomb. To that new order, we oppose the greater conception, the moral order. A good society is able to face schemes of world domination and foreign revolutions alike without fear. Since the beginning of our American history, we have been engaged in change in a perpetual, peaceful revolution, a revolution which goes on steadily, quietly, adjusting itself to changing conditions without the concentration camp or the quicklime in the ditch. The world order which we seek is the cooperation of free countries working together in a friendly, civilized society. This nation has placed its destiny in the hands and heads and hearts of its millions of free men and women, and its faith in freedom under the guidance of God. Freedom means the supremacy of human rights everywhere. Our support goes to those who struggle to gain those rights and keep them. Our strength is our unity of purpose to that high concept 
there can be no end save victory. That was President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Four Freedoms speech delivered on January 6, 1941. I'm Alan Shartok, and you're listening to The Power of Words, a year-long series of programs that follows American history through some of the most memorable and inspiring political speeches of our time. Joining us on the program today is historian Dr. Chris Bryseth. So, Chris, if I may call you that, please. I want to ask you this. I know that you think Harry Hopkins can supply us some insight by some of what he said. So tell us who he was. Harry Hopkins was a social worker who worked for Governor Roosevelt and was drawn into a deal with the unemployment problem created by the Depression, which New York suffered as much as any place. And he was brought over, actually, on the recommendation of Francis Perkins to be in charge of the CCC in the early days of the New Deal. That Civilian Conservation Corps. Right. And he became part of the public works projects that led to an amazing amount of, of employment. And Roosevelt liked him so much that he really became his key advisor. And as the war emerged, Roosevelt sent him to Churchill. The first real interaction with the new Churchill as the new prime minister and Roosevelt was through Harry Hopkins. He then did the same with Stalin, so that beyond our ambassadors, beyond the State Department people, Harry Hopkins was the president's representative. So he was this key internal guy. And by the way, through much of this, he was suffering with cancer. He was a very sick man, but he gave literally gave his all and died very shortly after Roosevelt died. Tell us some of Harry Hopkins' insights into Roosevelt. One of the people that Hopkins worked with on speeches for Roosevelt was a guy named Robert Sherwood. And Sherwood wrote a book shortly after the two men had died on Roosevelt and Hopkins. And as Roosevelt was trying to get Lend-Lease through in the days following the Four Freedoms speech, which Churchill regarded as the greatest generous act in the history of the world, This is by which we gave war materials first to the British, and then once Hitler started invading Russia, we gave it to Stalin, which was very controversial in a country that still was very anti-Bolshevik and still had J. Edgar Hoover as head of the FBI. On the other hand, it was the Soviet Union with all of their warts and terrible facets who really uh, had a large part in winning that war. No question. Without the Eastern Front victories of the Soviets, we might well have lost World War II. Had Hitler uh, managed to succeed in the Soviet Union with his invasion in June of 41, it would have been a very different situation. And Roosevelt knew that. He knew that from the time he recognized the Soviet Union in 1933. We have evidence that he saw there would be a two-ocean war. You've got the Japanese already invading China in 1931, and you had Hitler who comes to power the same month as Roosevelt comes to power. He saw no good from Hitler right from the beginning. He never was fooled by this guy. So he knew that if you're going to have a two-ocean war, you had to have the Soviet Union on our side. So his first major diplomatic act was to record on the Soviet Union. Anyway, in reacting to the negative comments in Congress and the, and the isolationist wing led by Hamilton Fish of, of our listenership area, the Congressman Fish. Referred to in a famous Rooseveltian poem as Martin, Barton, and Fish. Martin, Barton, and Fish. <laughs> Sherwood is in working with Roosevelt on a speech, and Roosevelt just cuts loose and attacks the Senate. He attacks the media. It's a vicious speech, and he's just won the Lend-Lease vote. And Hopkins says to him, you ought to know that he will end up giving a very tactful speech. He has no intention of using all that irritable stuff you say he dictated. He's just getting it off his chest. It's been rankling all this time, and now he's rid of it. He probably feels a lot better for it, and he'll have a fine sleep. Hopkins then spoke in a way that was very unusual for him. You and I are for Roosevelt because he's a great spiritual figure. 
because he's an idealist like Wilson, and he's got the guts to drive through against any opposition to realize those ideals. Oh, he sometimes tries to appear tough and cynical and flippant, but that's an act he likes to put on, especially at press conferences. He wants to make the boys think he's hard-boiled. Maybe he fools some of them, but don't ever let him fool you, or you won't be of any use to him. You can see the real Roosevelt when he comes out with something like the Four Freedoms. And don't get the idea that those are any catchphrases. He believes them. He believes they can be practically attained. That's what you and I have got to remember in everything we may be able to do for him. Oh, there are a lot of small people in this town who are constantly trying to cut him down to their size. And sometimes they've had some influence. But it's your job and it's mine, as long as we're around here, to keep reminding him that he's unlimited. And that's the way he's got to talk because that's the way he's going to act. Maybe we'll make ourselves unpopular now and then, but not in the long run, because he knows what he really is, even if he doesn't like to admit it to you or me or anybody. Now, you've referenced one of his heroes, and that's obviously Woodrow Wilson, who was, by many accounts, a terrific failure. I mean, did a lot of good things, but obviously couldn't get the League of Nations. So he ended up being perceived by many historians as a failure. His other hero that we read a lot about was his cousin, Theodore Roosevelt. And I wondered if you could sort of set us up with how each of those people influenced his political behavior. Well, he worked, as I said earlier, he worked for Wilson. He was assistant secretary of the Navy, and therefore he was the hands-on administrator in developing the Navy in World War I. A huge job. I think Wilson's importance long-term for Roosevelt was that he wanted to avoid the mistakes that Wilson made. First, how to deal with the Congress and getting in the war. The reason he waited for us to be attacked was to avoid the initiative that Wilson took that ultimately was very unpopular. But the other major failure of Wilson was to uh, bring America into the League of Nations. And Roosevelt, as a vice presidential candidate in 1920, campaigned with Cox for the League of Nations, and it was one of the reasons they were defeated. So Roosevelt didn't even defend the League in the 1932 campaign. But in his mind, a League of Nations or a United Nations was important. And he begins referring to the United Nations right from 41 on. That's who are involved in the war of the United Nations. And the Four Freedoms become the core of the United Nations Charter. They then become the core of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which Eleanor Roosevelt helps bring into being. So that Wilsonian tradition of an international peacekeeping body was something Roosevelt had on his mind from the very beginning. He began working on it from the Four Freedoms speech on. And as you know, he died just before the San Francisco Conference where the UN was created in the spring of 1945. Theodore Roosevelt, I mean, to the point that Roosevelt said to some of his colleagues as a young lawyer, I'm going to be elected to the state legislature. I'm going to be elected governor. I'm going to be assistant secretary of the Navy. And I'm going to be president of the United States. What he left out was the vice president. And both he and Rose and Teddy, of course, were vice presidential candidates. Teddy became a vice president, which is how he became a president. He also had the same number of children that Theodore had. If you look at the house in Hyde Park, the big room is a copy of Theodore Roosevelt's great library at Oyster Bay. So I think Theodore was his hero. He registered his first vote for president when he was at Harvard. He registered as a Republican to vote for Cousin Theodore. So I think Theodore was huge in his life. Theodore gave his niece, Eleanor, away at their wedding in 1905. And I think his approach to corporations and to antitrust and his support of labor, Theodore Roosevelt's, all strengthened Roosevelt both as governor of New York as well as president. What was the reaction to the speech? It was very favorable. And he approached Norman Rockwell about doing the covers. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So that the idea was lodged by the president himself. I mean, I can't think of that speech without the images of the four freedoms as painted by Rockwell. We have them up in our radio station here. It is almost as if 
he understood that words weren't enough, that there had to be the image of somebody with a freedom to pray or a freedom to speak at a town meeting or tucking the kids in to bed at night. Well, and as a the leader of radio in this whole Northeast, you've got to uh, at least pay some debt to Roosevelt for making radio the vital tool it was in our politics to be succeeded by television and then by computers and blogs. But this is the man who reached around the press by his fireside chats. And the Four Freedom speech was followed up by fireside chats, which dealt with land lease and dealt with war material and the sacrifices that he mentions in the speech that have to be made by everybody, labor, business, taxpayers, that this war has to be paid for not by debt but by taxation. For a country that now it's hard for politicians to be in favor of taxation to support essential services, Roosevelt, in that speech that we just heard, says we have to be taxed and that those who are wealthiest have to be taxed the most. Dr. Bryce said, you know, I talk to people about World War II all the time, and I say to them, could we have lost World War II? And they all say, oh, no, no way. They've seen enough American films. They don't know anything about what the Soviets lost, the millions of people they lost. Sixty million people died in World War II. They have no idea. Americans have very short memory about this, if at all. And you also mentioned J. Edgar Hoover going after all of the communists who he perceived as being so dangerous. But we could have lost this war, couldn't we? We could have lost the war. Churchill was very, and we haven't mentioned Churchill, who was absolutely a crucial part of Roosevelt's leadership. The two of them, really, together, are the ones who mobilize Western civilization against the scourge of dictators like Hitler and Mussolini and Tojo. Churchill was very wary of massive confrontation of troops on European soil. He did not see that Britain did not have enough men to take on the Germans on European soil. But it was Roosevelt's view, and of course he has much more manpower to work with by 1944, is that we have to make the invasion at Normandy, as we do on June 6th, 1944. Stalin, of course, is pushing both Churchill and Roosevelt to open up the Western Front to take the pressure off him on the Eastern Front. You can make the scenario that had Hitler played his hand a little differently, he could have whipped the Soviet Union. And if the Normandy invasion had come earlier, we might not have been able to be as successful because by that time we'd done great damage to their air power. The Battle of the Bulge in the winter of 1944, even after Normandy, was a terribly punishing battle. So it was not a foregone conclusion that we were going to win this war. Now, what Roosevelt believed from the beginning was that if you totally mobilize the American people, our resources, our material, and our spirit, that we were invincible. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank our expert historian, Dr. Chris Bryseth. Thanks also to our producer, David Gustina, the FDR Library and Museum for providing the speech, and special thanks to Bob Bullock from the Archives Partnership Trust. Be sure to join us next time for another discussion about a great political speech on the power of words. That was WAMC's Alan Shar talk in conversation with Roosevelt historian Christopher Bryseth in an encore power of words from 2011 on FDR and the Four Freedoms speech. To find out more or listen again, head to WAMC.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>